All right, this morning we will continue in our series called One Another. And I'll be starting in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. So if you have a Bible, please turn there now. The two words, one another, are actually just one word in the Greek, and it's used about 100 times in 94 verses of the New Testament. Some of the ones that you might know where the one another comes up is love one another, which our executive director Dale taught on an amazing sermon last week. Uh, some other ones that are really popular or that you might know is uh, forgive one another or bear one another's burden. The statement that I want to be sharing about today that I get to share about is be at peace with one another. So if you are at, the, at Ephesians 2, I'm going to be starting at reading a different verse, but stay in your Bible with Ephesians 2. I'm going to be reading the core verse that's going to be leading us today out of Romans 12, and it's going to be on the screen behind me. Romans 12, 18 says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, it is your peace that we need. It is your peace that we want. We can't do this on ourselves. I certainly can't do this on myself, by myself, and, and we just need you here. Would you teach us your word? Would you draw us closer to our Lord Jesus Christ? And would we just experience your nearness and your goodness and the unity that you want to bring in this church today? Give us a taste of heaven in San Francisco as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I already know that most of you expect me to start out talking about Germany, right? Because that's, that's, that's typically what I do. And so you're absolutely right. We're going to talk about Germany for a second. Uh, I'm going to give you a quick German history lesson. Are you guys okay with that? Yeah, okay, cool. Well, you don't have a choice anyways because I got the mic. Okay, our history lesson, our German history lesson starts with David Hasselhoff. Okay, have you guys actually, did you guys know that David Hasselhoff was more popular in Germany as a singer than he was for any of his movies? Did anybody know that? Yeah, people know that. That's crazy. <laughs> well, in the summer of 1989, um, and there's a picture of him right behind me, David Hasselhoff was actually number one in the German charts for eight straight weeks um, with his hit single, Looking for Freedom. Um, and for me, when I first realized that, I was like, man, this is such a bad representation of Germany because we just have such a bad taste of music. Um, <laughs> But, but yeah, it is true, he was like super popular. And in case you're wondering, this is the same David Hasselhoff that was in Baywatch, that was in uh, Knight Rider, uh, and the same guy who was actually playing the, the coach of the German national team in the, in the box hit movie, Dodgeball, a true underdog story. <laughs> so David Hasselhoff was super popular, particularly in the former East German part because he was known as the guy who sang about freedom. And come with me here for a second. Let's, let's leave David Hasselhoff on the side for a second, and we'll, 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 look, about, we'll look at this. Here's a, there's a country that was divided by the Berlin Wall, or the German Wall, that divided a whole country in itself. These are, these are, this is one nation, one nation separated by a huge wall. And the separation of this wall was not just like a, a cute little wall set up, it was killing people. It separated families. 
And so here we have a country that was once united under a, a terrible banner, doing cruel, cruel things to each other, but now separated by a wall. So history goes a little bit like this. After deserving and losing the Second World War, Germany was split into four parts, actually. Northern Germany was the British sector. Um, that's the part I was born into, in the British sector. The, Brit the British actually had the plan of making a farmland out of Northern Germany, so we were, I was probably just going to be a farmer out there. Um, then there was the American sector on the, in the southern parts, uh, um, where the army bases of Rammstein, not, this is an army base, not just a band, um, army, um, Rammstein and K-Town, some of you might know those things if you're in the army. Um, then there was the French sector, which was a small portion in the, in the west of Germany. And then there was this, this fairly big part in the east, which was run by the communist Soviet Union. And it was this eastern part, this East Germany, that was actually largely disconnected from the most of the rest of Germany. As the government slowly established themselves in those few different parts, you know, settled in and made, them, made their place their own, there was, a, there was a, a crucial comment that the head of state of the, East Germany, uh, of the East German nation said at one point. He said this, Niemand hat die, hat die Absicht, eine Mauer zu errichten. <laughs> Which translates to that no one has the intention to build a wall. Two months later, they build a wall between East and West Germany in Berlin too, and it separated and divided our country for 28 years and 88 days. Okay, back to Hasselhoff. So legend actually has it that the Hoff was a huge contributor in, in helping the wall crumble and come down. And it, it helped to reunite the East and the West. The role he played there was obviously singing about freedom and his search for freedom, giving hope to those people in Germany, and specifically in the East, for some of them who just felt really, really oppressed by the government and felt disconnected from the, their fellow people. And for a lot of Germans, the falling of the wall actually meant that they had direct access to family members again. Like I said, the wall actually separated family members at, at, a, at a good amount of time. Um, and so on November 9th, 1989, I was about five years old, the wall comes down. But please don't picture here something like the, the walls of Jericho crumbling, falling down. Um, it was the German people who stood up and got on the wall, who pulled each other on the wall, who took just small pieces of their everyday life from their backyards, from their workplaces, and hammered holes into that wall. And they dragged each other through there, brought each other, they hugged each other, they celebrated on this wall. And so Germany was united again. And everybody was happy. No. <laughs> you know, actually, to this day, we're still referring to each other, the, the Aussies and the Vessies, which is the Eastern and the Westerns. There's still a, a divide there. You know, when, when Germany was reunited, each country, each former country, had to give up a lot of their ecosystems, a lot of things that they worked with that was essentially to their part. And unfortunately, East Germany had to give up quite a lot more than West Germany had, which led to a huge tension that you actually still feel in that country today. Because you see, simply tearing down a wall does not necessarily bring automatic unity. I mean, look at the name of the country that we're in today, the United States of America. These states became united, as most of you know, on July 4th, 1776, by the signing of the Declaration of Independence. But just how united have these states actually been since then? 
And how united is this country today? You see, unity doesn't just happen. It takes intentional work. As you look around this room, if you would turn around or even just look down the aisle, look around this room, you notice that people, that this church is made up of all sorts of different people. You see them coming from all sorts of different places, backgrounds, ethnicities, social economic statuses. But still we're here because we have one thing in common, right? We all want to know Jesus. We all want to follow Jesus. But that doesn't mean that we're actually all in unity. I think it's safe to say that we have somewhat of a unity, particularly in a country and a world that is very much deeply divided. But when I say the words that the church is somewhat united, somewhat disunited, if you're a millennial, please don't go all fixed on this problem right now. Hear me out for a second. Stay with me, okay? Don't have your mind rattle off like, okay, let's fix this problem about unity. Because this part about disunity has been, is, is very historical. It's been part of the church for a long time. It is not a new phenomenon for the church to not be united. Churches always struggle with the fact that there is one common interest but multiple different viewpoints and perspectives on so many different issues. We see this in the way that we see life, we see money, we see politics. We even see the divide in the different ways we understand and apply the Bible to our lives. And these are just a few things that contributes towards this unity. There's so much more that we probably disagree about. But you see, most of the New Testament was actually written because and about that specifically. When the Gentiles got saved, remember the Gentiles get saved all of a sudden, the Jews who were part of God's family for a long time got super confused of like, wait, there's all these people who are who actually not part of our family, but all of a sudden they claim stakeholders of our families. And now how are we supposed to get them in? You know, when, when you have a long history with somebody and then somebody else comes new into that, how are they fitting into the family history that is already established? And so the, chur the, the churches called out to the church leaders. They called out to those people that led them and be like, how are we supposed to deal with our differences? And so here's what Paul says, and that's what I had to you turn to in, in Ephesians 2, 13 through 17. So here's what Paul says to a church in Ephesus that faces the dilemma of disunity. Ephesians 2, 13 through 17 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, so here he talks about the Gentiles, us, who had nothing to do with God, who were distant from God, who were not his heirs, who were not his people, we were now invited in to something, right? We have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So it says that through Jesus' blood, the Gentiles were now brought into an equal status and were united with the children of Israel who now had the common Savior of Jesus Christ. It goes on in verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing walls of hostility. And he has done that by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross 
by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. When I first read those words that he was destroying barriers and dividing walls of hostility, I imagined the Incredible Hulk just like flowing in and just ripping things apart, destroying stuff and reuniting forcefully what was separated at one point. But you see, Jesus isn't like that, actually. Jesus became quite vulnerable by bringing unification by going on the cross and dying for our sins. Jesus has no need to break down walls by force. He's not about strong-arming anybody into his kingdom or into a mindset that is him. You see, because I think that non-physical walls are very rarely broken with force. I would actually argue with you that winning, for example, a political argument or some core belief that we have that we might disagree with somebody about, by simply yelling at them, by strong-arming them into your opinion, you most likely won't solve the issue that you have. You won't most likely win somebody over to your side. But there is a chance that you see walls coming down by actually just sitting with people, hearing their side, relating to them, to their humanity, because to every opinion there's usually a story. A person that immediately comes to mind when I think about a, a peaceful approach to those who were opposing him was Martin Luther King Jr. And the reason why is because he was a good listener, and he was a good listener because he had a specific understanding of the gospel that was core to the way that he viewed his fellow human beings. So listen to what he says about the, the people that he opposes and how to approach them. The person who hates you most has some good in him. Even the nation that hates you most has some good in it. Even the race that hates you most has some good in it. And when you come to the point that you look in the face of every man and see deep down within him what religion calls the image of God, you, be, you begin to love him in spite of. No matter what he does, you see God's image there. We need to understand what Martin Luther King Jr. understood and what Paul is saying in Ephesians, that we are all created in the image of God. Every single human being in this room and outside of this room is created as an image bearer of God and is loved by God equally. We are equal image bearers of God. And therefore, unity is possible when we start seeing each other through the lens of equality, that we are all equally saved from our sinful lives to a life with Jesus. And we are equal not because we, are, we look so cool or because we do so cool things. We are equal because of what Jesus did on the cross. Because what he did is that he set aside the law, as Paul said, with its commands and regulations. And so what he did there is that he took upon himself and he, that he broke down the barriers of the, of, of, of the walls of judgment, which, were, which is kind of a standing a meaning for the laws that we put about each other, the ways that we see each other. You see, through the Old Testament in the, in the, in the Old um, in the old way that people approach God, we were all measured by the law. How good are you following up to the law? And so what Jesus says is like, the law is not the measurement anymore. You're all equal now in God's, in God's kingdom. 
which doesn't give us an excuse to just be sinful people and do whatever we want to do because now we are actually image bearers of God. And as image bearers of God, what we want to do is we want to become an image of the one that we're following, right? We want to become more like Jesus. We want to do the things that Jesus did. We want to be with Jesus. So the giving of his life and the shedding of his blood is what brings unity. And so when we all together enter into this belief that we believe in Jesus' death on the cross, into his resurrection, we can now start to see each other as equals. Because it's his blood that united us with the Father, and it's his blood that unites us with our fellow believer. And that is why Paul, in the passage that we read earlier, can say that Jesus' purpose of the, of the work on his cross was to create a new humanity in himself of those who believe and that in that way he's bringing peace between those who are usually have a deep issue and a deep dis- uh, not united with each other. Here's what Bonhoeffer says in his book Life Together. And of course I'll quote Bonhoeffer because that's what I do every sermon. <laughs> Der Christ braucht den Christen No, just kidding. Uh, I'm actually going to read this passage a little bit in English because it's too long to speak that long in German. Plus, nobody, half of you, well, maybe five people in this room understand what I was saying. So here it is. Here's Dietrich Bonhoeffer's quote out of Life Together. The Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. A Christian comes to others only through Jesus Christ. Among men, there is strife. He is our peace, says Paul of Jesus Christ. Without Christ, there is discord between God and men and between men and men. Christ became the mediator and made peace with God and among men. Without Christ, we should not know God, We could not call upon him, nor come to him. But without Christ, we also would not know our brother, nor could we come to him. The way is blocked by our own ego. Christ opened the way to God and to our brother. Now Christians can live with one another in peace. They can love and serve one another. They they can become one. But they can continue to do so only by the way of Jesus Christ. Only in Jesus Christ are we one. Only through him we are bound together. I think Bonifer just says it so well here, that Jesus Christ is our peace and that he brought us the peace that we long for, that we desire. Peace comes because we are reconciled to God and because we are reconciled to one another. And therefore, peace comes in a vertical sense between us and God and in a horizontal sense between men and men. But it is really, really understa- important for us to understand how we receive um, peace so that we can enter into unity and we can become peacemakers. Because without peace, we won't be able to, without Christ's peace, we won't be able to produce our own true peace. So let's take a look at, at the words of Jesus and how he introduced to us the, his work of bringing peace towards us. So turn your Bibles to John 14. I'm going to be reading John 14, 26 through 28. And while you turn there, I'll give you a little bit of a hint. 
as the five of you who brought Bibles with you are turning there, I'll give you a little hint of how Jesus brings peace. Do you remember the triangle of transformation? Yes. Yeah? Yes. Three? Yes. yes. Perfect. Okay, triangle of transformation. Dave introduced to us the triangle of transformation a couple weeks ago. And by the way, congrats, Dave. Um, He had a baby, he's a father now. Gotta say congratulations, yeah. So remember the Triangle of Transformation, there were three parts to that, right? And there's a centerpiece that's gonna be the vital part for us to understand how Jesus brings peace. John 14, 26 through 28 says, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do, not give peace, I, I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So yeah, the right answer here is that it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that gains us access to Jesus and his peace. Because he's about peacemaking. He is the image of God and God is about peacemaking. And here's just a side note that I want you to know. His kingdom and his reign does not lack of any sort of peace. What I mean is that wherever this peace comes from, and the peace comes from Jesus through the Holy Spirit, there is no lack of peace. Because where it comes from, there's only abundance. Jesus never runs out of resources. And so having peace and administrating peace is essential to what Jesus did. And it's essential to what he's doing. Let's look at that in two verses real quick. Mark 9.50, be at peace with one another. In Matthew 5.9, blessed are the peacemakers. God bless the Enneagram Nines. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. <laughs> okay, so back to the triangle of transformation. Let's look at what, what we just learned here through the triangle of transformation. What we've learned so far is the truth part that, oh, sorry, what we've learned so far in the graph that we see is truth, right, on the top, practices on the bottom left, community, and then all that has to happen through the Holy Spirit. And so what we've worked through so far is, first of all, that the Holy Spirit is essential to this work. And second, that there's truths that we can believe about Jesus that we are to have peace and bring peace. So here are the truths again. Jesus has brought down the dividing walls of unity and has united his followers. Jesus is our peace through the Holy Spirit, and his peace is still with us through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus wants us to be at peace with one another. So what I'm saying is that in theory, in theology, peace is possible. And it comes through Jesus, it comes through his work on the cross, and he has united us as equal image bearers of God. And that his peace comes through the Holy Spirit. So there needs to be that inward work first, which we kind of have just done, and which I encourage you to keep doing, is to meditate on these truths, these, these verses that we've seen about peace bringing. Because there can't be an outward work, which we always are so wanting to do, we want to just make things happen, before we actually focus inward and do the work inside of us. So what does the outward work look like of peace? How does Jesus want me to be at peace 
with others. And I'm just going to say this controversial question. How can Jesus bring peace in the craziness that I see all around me in that world? Is it possible that Jesus can actually bring peace to a divided and disunited world that's outside of us? Is it possible? Because it's true, right? We are asked that question almost every day. When, I, when we wake up, and what we typically do is instead of grabbing our Bibles, we go onto our phones, open up our Twitter app or our social media apps, and all we see is injustice, disunity, terror, death, cruel deaths of yet another image bearer of God. And to be honest, the more I look into that, the more I get numb to actually people dying. But it brings this question, is peace actually possible in our world? And I would say, yes, peace is possible, but it's only possible through Jesus Christ and through the work of his, his Holy Spirit. And so I want to ask you a question that I want you to take away from this today. In your personal conflict and the things that you are dealing with, the things that, strife, that's, that strike your heart, that hit your heart, have you sought out Jesus recently and consoled him about how he wants to bring his peace into there? Have you taken time to listen to him, how he wants to minister and administer to you his peace? Here's one way that I experienced his peace. Before my wife Chris and I got married, um, we spent a good deal trying to figure out where we should spend our married life together. And so the options were, one, we would move to Germany, I would continue going to college for sports management, and we would try to figure out life there with her not speaking much of the German language? Or would it be San Francisco, the city that she moved to to help plant this, the church that I'm standing for in front today? Um, and so we were sitting there with these options and slowly heard from the Holy Spirit and from God that it was San Francisco, which meant for me that I had to leave the friends that I grew up with, the family that I was really, really deeply connected to, and quite honestly, I had to leave all of this to go to a, to a city that I felt really, really intimidated by. I had a hard time with San Francisco at first. It was too big for me. There was too much going on. I just couldn't handle it. So we made the decision, and I got on the plane, and I had quite some hours from, a, from my plane ride from Germany through Dallas to San Francisco to figure out what am I, stepping, what am I actually stepping into in all of this? And I started to notice just some discomfort coming up. I was just like, man, is this the right decision? Should we do this? Should, what, maybe we should bring her to Germany. I feel a bit more safer over there. We, I speak the language. Um, and, and so I was sitting there with a discomfort on the plane. And God met me in my inner turmoil with that. You see, as soon as I, I went through the plane ride and stepped my foot off, the beautiful place in San Francisco, the SFO, I heard a small voice here saying in my head, welcome home. Now, when I heard these words, was I immediately at peace? Was I just like, oh, okay, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be good. No way. No way. I mean, listen to this. I stepped off the plane without a work visa. I couldn't work. My wife was a part-time nanny. So we lived on, a, on San Francisco on the Fillmore Street on a part-time nanny income. And I was like, how in the world is this going to work out? I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know how things are going to happen. But what I had to do myself is to remind myself of these words, welcome home. 
This is where I have you. This is where I want you. And I'm actually kind of excited to also tell my baby boy who's going to join us in 14 days to tell the same words of, welcome home, buddy. Yes. <laughs> if Lomas can do it, I can do it. You see, it's one thing to know that peace is possible. It's one thing that Jesus wants me to be at peace, but it's a whole other thing to actually put that peace into practice. And that's where our guiding verse, Romans, 14, uh, Romans 12, comes in. Uh, Romans 12, verse 18, is all about practical peace with one another. So let's read the verse here. I think it's going to be on the screen behind me. It's a short one. It's a good one. Remember it. Meditate on it. Romans 12, 18. If it is possible... As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So if you're like me, it's going to start freaking you out like, wait, you're saying everyone? I need to be at peace with everyone? That stresses me out rather than giving me any peace, right? But yeah, that's what Paul says, be at peace with everyone. But before we get there, there's actually two parts of the sentence that we need to look at first before we get to being at peace with everyone. So let's backstep a little bit. We'll go, we'll go back to those, two, to those two parts of the sentence. And, and from here on out, the this, this sermon is going to be a little bit more uh, practice-oriented. Uh, um, where we're going to get into the parts of the, the, the trying of transformation that's, that's called practices, okay? So if it is possible, what Paul is saying here is simple. See if peace is possible. Is it possible? Yes, it is. Peace is possible. And no, sometimes peace is not possible. Let's be honest here, because there's sometimes that we find ourselves in circumstances that we, we actually want peace, but peace is not possible. Imagine, for example, a conflict that you've been in um, that always, like, as you guys know, a conflict always involves two or more people, right? So if you want something, it doesn't mean that the other person wants that too, right? So if you're in a conflict with someone who has sadly maybe completely cut you out of their lives, they don't even want to talk to you about it anymore, it's very unlikely that you get what you desire or that you get what, what Paul wants you to, to do or what Jesus desires you to do is to be at peace. Now, true, there are ways to give, forgive somebody else when you're not in their presence and when they don't want to talk to you, but it doesn't mean that you are at peace with them. There's also instances that you have to be or you desire to be at peace with somebody who is actually dangerous or who is full of hate and you can't even approach that person. And I think it's important for us to recognize in those circumstances first that we need to be at peace with God and with ourselves, knowing that I've tried my best, and which we're going to get into the second part, but it might not actually be possible, but it can't be a cop-out. Because what's the second part of the sentence? It says, as far as it depends on you. You see, a lot of times I think that we, in order to be at peace with somebody, we wait for the other person to come to us first. We're like, no, no, they were at fault, and I'm going to wait till they come, and they're just going to be living in this discomfort and disunity. But I'm okay because it wasn't my fault, right? And while we might be right into that, we need to enter into a place of self-examination. Self-examination is a place where you invite God in, and you kind of process out loud with God about the things that you're feeling towards another person when you feel disunited with them. So you ask yourself and you ask Jesus a question, what can I do to be a peacemaker? And I think there's two things that are important in the self-examination, though I think the list is quite longer, but I don't have time. I think, first of all, you need to realize that 
being at unity, being peace with, with, with one another, doesn't always mean that you have to be best buds with that person again. And I think that's especially important for people that go through breakups. Just because you have had a stunt or went through something that was really uniting and now it's separated, it doesn't mean that you have to be like best friends with them and hang out with them again. But there is a chance, there's an opportunity, a possibility for you to be in peace with that person. And then second of all, what's important is that you need to notice patterns. When I look at people that I don't, that I don't like, do I notice a pattern here? Maybe that pattern, then I realize that pattern is not just in that one person, it's actually in a full people group that rubs me the wrong way. Where I feel like, man, there is a pattern here that I see, but I also need to realize that these people are made in God's image, and therefore I need to realize, is there a pattern that rubs me wrong in somebody else, though they're an image bearer of God, and therefore maybe something that is God's character rubs me the wrong way too? Now there's a whole part of conflict resolution which I'm not an expert on, so I won't be talking about it, but I think we're going to be talking about it later in this year, and there's tons of resources out there. But one thing that has helped me a lot is uh, after we went through a conflict season on staff, um, we went through and adapted the principles of a book called Difficult Conversations. And in there, for the first time, the idea of contribution came up to me. You see, for me, it's actually easy to find wrong in everybody else but me. It's always everybody else that's at fault but me. So in conflict or in a disagreement with people, I am, I am still training myself to realize that how have I contributed towards the discomfort, towards the disunity? You know, my MO, and you can ask my wife, is I usually just start apologizing. I'm just like, I'm sorry. And then she always is like, well, what are you sorry for? I was like, I don't know, I'm just sorry. I just, I don't want to be in conflict with you anymore. And so for me, I have to practice self-examination. What am I actually sorry for? What have I actually done that contributed towards the conflict? And then lastly, the part that Paul stresses is living at peace with everyone. And yes, this includes everyone. It's not just one another, it's everyone. And Paul's actually really clear and specific about how the everyone part works out. And you would have known that if I would have actually given you a good context about that. But I don't have the time for that. So I'll give you a context right now in a short, shortcut of that, okay? In Romans 12, 14 through 21, where our verse is anchored in, he talks to the Romans about how to deal with conflict uh, with different people that you're not at peace with. He talks to them actually first of, about people that persecute you. Paul says to be in peace with those people who persecute you. And how, what does he say in how to do it? He says it by by blessing them. He says, um, bless them and do not curse them. Don't take a re revenge on them. Don't take revenge of those people that are, that are out there for you. Trust that God's judgment is good and right and that he will take care of it. He actually says, uh, he goes this far in saying, you should actually feed your enemy. And he says to not overcome evil with evil, but to overcome evil with good. And just like, like Martin Luther King said here, Darkness cannot, outdrive, cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. The other instructions are here are to mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice. And to this I just have to say that I think we still have room for improvement to actually rejoice with those who rejoice. I think jealousy easily kicks in a lot of times and we, just, we are rather jealous with those who are rejoicing. But I think we have a harder part to actually embrace the mourning with those who mourn part. I think our mentality is more, we need to fix those who mourn. 
And I think that because it's actually hard for some of us to actually share the deep things that hurt us because we have had experiences. Experiences of, of not being taken serious, of, of not being taken care of, of feeling left out. And so I ask you, and I want, I want you to ask yourself this question, how can I, as far as it depends on me, and it is possible, how can I create and radiate that I'm a safe space for people to be open and vulnerable? How can I be the, a confidant for people that they can confide in me? And so here we are to the one another part. Because I think that peace is possible with everyone, but it needs to be practiced first with one another. If we can't be at peace with people outside, uh, if we can't be at peace with people inside this church, how are we to be able to be at peace with people outside of, of, of the church? Because usually what we are full of is grace and forgiveness and kindness towards each other, practicing the fruits of the Spirit with each other. And we know that the Holy Spirit is at work in me as much as the Holy Spirit is at work in the other person. So this place needs to be a practice ground for us to be united and to be at peace with others. Let me close our time with a story. Here's a picture of Lema Bowie. Lema Bowie um, had a dream in 2002. And in her dream, she saw herself in thick rain. And while she was in the rain, she heard a voice. And the voice said to her, wake up and gather the women of the church to pray for peace. She took that message and ran to her pastor and said, hey, God just spoke to me that somebody needs to start a prayer meeting for peace, and I can't do it because I'm morally disqualified and I'm full of fear. I can't do it. You need to figure somebody out who can lead a prayer meeting. To where the pastor and the church members who heard that said, well, the dream bearer is also the dream carrier. You see, God has placed this on the receiving hand of those who receive the dreams or the words. Fear because Lema was invited to pray for peace in her home country of Liberia, which has at this point been three years into their second civil war. The first one was one of the bloodiest wars in African history, with over 200,000 killed people, millions of refugees, and it left the country in an almost destroyed economy. The second one started out just a year and a half after the, the other one ended, and at this point, there was extensive numbers of innocent civilians being killed, killed, and most shockingly to most of the mothers and the women were that their own kids were drugged, given weapons, and they became child soldiers. In an interview that Lemar gave later, the interviewer asked her about her dream. He says, what if this dream is asking the impossible? Bowie says that she wasn't at peace in her own life and when she had that dream, that she was just, she didn't feel it, but that her church members again reached out to her and, and said, to, said to her, sometimes God uses the foolish things in the world to confront the wise. Just like Bonhoeffer says, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. Because God brings peace in an unrestful life. Lema Boy started a prayer meeting with seven women from her church. The prayer meetings grew, and a few months later, she found herself as the head of a peace movement, acting out nonviolent protests protest, while remaining in rhythms of daily prayer, fasting, and communal worship. In August of 2003, 
this almost 3,000 women strong group forced the continuation of peace talks. They were about to end the peace talks by nonviolently protesting in front of the meeting spaces, and she rang in peace in a country that was at war for almost 14 years, which killed almost 350,000 people. You see, with Jesus, the power of prayer and obedience to action, peace is possible. Peace is possible in places that seem to be impossible. Lema Bowie actually and two of her co-leaders won a Nobel Peace, the Nobel Peace Prize in 2011 for her work and has gotten numerous of awards for her work into there. Actually, one of her co-leaders became the first elected female head of state in Liberia. So what I'm saying is that peace is possible. Peace is possible amongst each other. Peace is possible in the world. And Jesus wants to administer his peace to this world. And so with that, let's enter into our ministry time, our second set of worship. And I believe this is how Jesus wants to administer his peace to you today. He does that through a fellow believer that might be up front here in the prayer team. He does that with people next to you in the pews. He does it in worship. He does it in silence. He does it in journaling. He does it in crying out to him. He does it through community. But first and foremost, he does it through his Holy Spirit. Jesus' promise is, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Would you stand with me? And we're going to read out a prayer together that we first saw in the, in the, in the video, the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. Okay, let's, let's read this out together. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, love my soul love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love, for it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.